Hello out there, Morris speaking. My gosh, it's been quite a few weeks, maybe even a few months since I've said that into a microphone. But there you go, here I am. This is episode 161 of the Love That Album podcast, very proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. For those of you who may be listening to this show for the first time, welcome on board. This is a show where I don't know really what the format is anymore. Basically, I'd pick an album, get on a guest, and we'd talk about that album. And sometimes I'd get on a musician and we'd talk about their work. Anything music-related, discussion-worthy, that's what this show is about. Now, I'm not going to go into the details. If you know me in private life, then you know why I haven't been around for the last two, three months online. My apologies if you've been a fan of the show. Thank you very much. My apologies if you've been expecting episode 161 a lot earlier than this. And episode 161 was going to be a discussion with my friend Charlie Mahoney about the Pete Townsend album White City from uh, 1985, I think, or 1986. I should know that sort of stuff. What sort of a music fan am I? I don't know. But real life intervened and things happened that just did not allow me the headspace to be able to talk about anything pleasant on a podcast. Real life seems to have kicked in a number of times through the life of this podcast, but I do come back because I love doing this show. I love doing the See Here podcast with my good friends Tim Merrill and Bernie Stickwell talking about music-related films. That will be coming back maybe January or February 2023. Not sure. So I decided that I was back in the headspace now. Things had improved a little bit. And I was in the headspace to go recording an episode of the show. And normally I don't like recording programs by myself. But I felt like I just really wanted to come back in a gentle way, not really commit myself to planning a big show. I just wanted to quietly do this, maybe piecemeal by myself. And normally what I do at this time of the year, though for some reason I didn't do it last year. Um, Oh yes, I know why I didn't. Anyway, (laughs) normally I like to present at this time of the year, favorite first time listens, favorite discoveries, whatever you want to call it. And I thought rather than getting in five or six other people like I normally do to talk about their favorite first time listens, I just quietly record this episode by myself where I'm talking about a number of my favorite first time listens for the year. And I had quite a few, but I'm going to limit myself to three, all quite different from each other. And hopefully you'll dig on what I'm going to recommend. And, you know, probably at the end of the show, I'll throw in a few names of other things that I really enjoyed for the first time this year. But I'm going to talk in detail about three particular albums, see where we go. I'm not sure how long this episode's going to be. Hopefully I'll be able to stretch it up to an hour, but we'll see. So enough of that sort of rambling. I'll go into a different type of rambling in a couple of minutes. Joe will now give you the contact details if you wish to write to me by email or you wish to join the Facebook group for Love That Album and start music-related discussions with other like-minded people, then um, we'll get on with it. It's uh, early December as I'm recording this. It's a Sunday morning. I'm not sure if that's detail that you're interested in, but I'm giving it to you anyway. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hope you're all keeping well. Thank you very much for not having removed this show from your feed when I didn't show up for a few weeks. We're still here. This show isn't going anywhere. There's going to be breaks again in the future, but 
the show isn't going anywhere. I love doing it and I hope you love listening to it. I'm rambling. I'm being self-indulgent. That's what happens when you do a show by yourself. At least that's what happens when I do a show by myself. Next year, we'll be back with other people. Anyway, we'll be back in a few moments. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Hello and welcome back to episode 161 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. And this time around, I'm focusing on a few of my favorite discoveries of 2022. One album is a 2022 album even. How about that? And the other two are considerably older. I hope that you enjoy my recommendations and can search them out. Maybe you already know them. Let me know. Uh, I have a feeling that the 2022 album will be something that a lot of Australians, certainly a lot of Melburnians may be aware of, but we'll get to that shortly. So the first album I want to bring to your attention is one that I discovered a few months ago, picked up a copy on record, secondhand, and sometimes the fact that it's a particular artist on a label that you love is enough to draw your attention. So they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I basically allowed myself to be curious about this album based on the record label. How vacuous am I? The label is Atlantic Records. The album's from 1973, and it's by the arranger, composer, orchestrator, and pianist Gil Evans. The name of the album is Svengali. I have no idea how many Gil Evans fans there are out there, but I previously knew Gil Evans for two things. One was the fact that he collaborated with Miles Davis on a couple of uh, beloved albums, uh, Porgy and Bess and Sketches of Spain. Both of those were records that Miles recorded before he started his experiments with modal jazz. Gil Evans' orchestral arrangements are the stars of those albums, in my opinion. It's obvious that it would take someone with enough talent like Gil Evans to get Miles Davis on board. Now, as a kid, we had the soundtrack for the film of Porgy and Bess in our home. And uh, I think either my dad or my sister had bought the film soundtrack. So by the time I got round to the Miles Davis, Gil Evans version... Sometime in the late 80s, I think, it was certainly a set of songs that was ingrained into my mind. Miles Davis's trumpet just sounded so melancholy on songs like Gone, Gone, Gone or My Man's Gone Now.
Gil Evans' arrangements just so perfectly worked in tandem with Miles' performance. That orchestra that sounded so cool and nothing like the orchestral arrangement for a Broadway musical would. It brought in a beautiful sense of dynamic and was a real development on what jazz could be. This was not big band jazz of the previous decade, but it applied the principles, to my mind, of what small ensemble cool jazz sounded like to a large ensemble. The other Gil Evans album that I knew him for was Gil Evans Orchestra Plays the Music of Jimi Hendrix, which came out in 1974. So that's one year after Svengali, the album that I want to focus on. Supposedly, there'd been plans for Jimi Hendrix to record with Gil Evans, which obviously never eventuated. I really imagine that they would have done something wonderful and that Jimi Hendrix would have been interested in sonic experiments beyond the limits of a small rock band like the Jimi Hendrix Experience or the Band of Gypsies. So given the two could never record new material together... Gil Evans' talent as an orchestrator and arranger was always going to make work on an album of existing Hendrix songs a worthwhile exercise, at least in my mind. The Gil Evans Orchestra Plays the Songs of Jimi Hendrix came out in 74, as I said, and unless you're a Hendrix purist, it's something that I think you should celebrate. There's a strong emphasis on 1970s funk that really works on the orchestra's arrangement of Voodoo Child and Castles Made of Sand. A little wing is absolutely beautiful and majestic and the horn section shows off some moments of dissonance that really make it interesting. I confess there are moments of tenor sax corniness on the arrangement of Angel that doesn't work, but overall it's an album that I love, something that you should also go and check out. If you haven't heard his work before and wonder why it's special to a lot of people, it's hard for me as a jazz lover of no education to put into words, but I'd say it has everything to do with what he heard in his head with the range of instruments to use for specific chord voicings. Obviously, his imagination runs wild with melodies and actual chord progressions, but as an arranger and orchestrator, it's that ability to know what combination of instruments are going to work on specific chords and how to bring in dissonance when it's needed and his element of groove, of which there is a lot. I don't know if Gil Evans and Lalo Schifrin ever met. Given Evans was older and was working as an orchestrator well before, I'd have to suggest he was probably an influence to some degree on Lalo Schifrin going by Svengali. I can't prove it, but it's possible. Count Basie and Duke Ellington were probably an influence on them both. Any jazz scholar out there, please write and let me know. I'd really like to know whether there is an actual connection. The album itself, Svengali, is considered a high point in Evans' career, I believe. 
I hear lots of stuff going on with this album and the two sides of the album take on pretty different tones while still sounding cohesive. Side one of the record, which is the first three cuts, sound like it could work as a soundtrack to a 70s action film. is the opening cut which is a great slow funk groove that definitely sounds like it's not in a hurry to go anywhere definitely this fits into any film Lalo Schifrin would have scored with that funk groove and the minor key horn section stabs the other long cut on side one is a tune called Blues in Orbit sounds like a piece with an identity crisis it keeps switching between a composed funk piece before a subsection of the orchestra kicks in with something like a free jazz sort of thing it switches back and forth and is completely wild i love that a structured composed piece can coexist with the improvisation that takes place on this tune the tenor sax of a fellow called Billy Harper goes wild in those parts. He also plays on a Max Roach album I really love called Lift Every Voice and Sing, also out on the Atlantic record label. See if you can track that down on CD or, heaven forbid, streaming. Wherever you can listen to it, it's a fantastic album. Side 2, by contrast, starts out with a fusion feel before Evans revisits Miles Davis. There's a tune called City of Hunger. This tune sounds to me like it could have worked well on a Mahavishnu Orchestra album, which was a thing at the time, if the focus is more on John McLaughlin's guitar style and less on the saxophone. It starts out explosively before settling into something a bit less wild, but I think David Sanborn's alto sax keeps wild. I like Sanborn as a saxophone player, but I'm more used to hearing him play I don't know, more middle-of-the-road jazz and less full-on than on this piece. And I don't mean to sell him short because he is a great player and he did have a great television show, I think, in the 80s. I can't remember what it was called, but I've seen bootlegs of it. You know, he used to have a house band and he'd play saxophone with whoever the guest was. But I've got an album of his called One From The Heart and that's very, very smooth jazz. And I sort of like it for what it is, but his playing on City of Hunger and the Gil Evans Orchestra album is just not something that I expect to hear from David Sanborn. So full credit to him. Another tune on side two, we're coming back to Miles Davis connection here, is the Gil Evans arrangement here of Summertime. 
I don't know about you folks out there, but I think Summertime is one of those tunes that I don't really need to ever hear again. It's so ubiquitous and it's been covered so many recorded versions and if you go to a blues jam session there's always someone who's doing it it's a great song don't get me wrong absolutely love it but it's been done to death so i didn't think i needed to hear another version but if anyone was entitled to do it again it was gil evans and his orchestra it's not exactly a clone of his arrangement for the Miles version of the Porgy and Bess album, but it sounds like he's revising the horn section arrangement in a call and response type of approach at the start, which is what happens on the Miles version. Instead of Miles playing the melody on the trumpet, it's guitarist Ted Dunbar. And when he plays a portion of the melody, the horn section responds. Overall, though, the rhythm section on this version is slower than the Davis version, which would lead you to think it's going to be more melancholic. But Dunbar's guitar gets a little more frantic than it should, in my uneducated opinion. The rest of the arrangement, though, is pretty sublime, I have to say. You could probably find copies of the record or CD on Discogs or the full thing on YouTube if you want to listen to it that way. It's a real headphone album because it just sounds so beautiful and rich with detail. It was recorded in a church in New York, and you can just hear that space in this recording. And I know a lot of Blue Note recordings were done in big rooms. I'm not sure if they were all churches or the like, but certainly rooms with high ceilings like churches. And that's what makes a lot of older style jazz sound so absolutely fantastic. I'm going to be searching more Gil Evans stuff out. Uh, and it was just such a pleasure to track this one down. If most of your jazz experience is from small ensemble bop jazz, then give this a try. See what you think. I've become a real big convert now and want to search out a lot more of Gillivan's earlier material. So I'll now have a quick break and I'll be back in a little bit to talk about my second album for the show, another great discovery of 2022. This is Audio Cumulus with me, David Kowalski. Audio Cumulus is fake Latin for music collection, and here I discover and play some great music, some brand new songs and some old classics, as well as some obscure stuff. And being Australian, I'm going to play loads of homegrown talent in here as well. The show often has guests and interviews, and we're not showing away from a bit of fun either. The show is something that fills in the blanks with fantastic music that deserves to be heard and the sort of stuff that's absent from commercial radio. One thing you can guarantee is that if it's on Audio Cumulus, you know it's going to be good. Find us on mixcloud.com forward slash the sound and the fury podcast or go to mixcloud.com and search for Audio Cumulus. So for the next album, I was tossing up between two possibilities, both Melbourne-based singer-songwriters, and we're not short of those here. So really, if I'd expanded that, it could be a whole lot more than just two. But I'd limited it down to Leah Senior and her album of a couple of years back called The Passing Scene.
friend of the show, Ian McFarlane, brought her up on a previous episode, and I regret that it took me only until very recently to fully search into her back catalogue and bring that music into my life. It's absolutely wonderful. I've decided I'll probably devote some time to that on a future episode, so keep an ear out for that. And if you haven't listened to Leah Senior, please go and search her out. She's wonderful. But for this show, I've decided that I want to talk about a singer who released her second album back in January of 2022. So how adventurous am I bringing up a current album? That's, yeah, there you go. If you've been tuning into independent radio or following the local music sites, I'm sure that the name of Grace Cummings will be familiar to you. She released an album called Refuge Cove back in 2019 and followed it up this year with Storm Queen, which is where I first picked up on her. The first thing I wondered, and this is very superficial, based on her name was whether she was related to Stephen Cummings of the sports. I couldn't find out for certain either way, but in the end, it doesn't matter. I don't recall what it was that I'd read that made me search her out, but I do know that it was the opening cut of the Storm Queen album, a song called Heaven, that really made me focus on her. There is no This was the first song with a video clip. I don't call it a single because aside from collectors, who is buying 45s anyway nowadays? The first thing I thought, as I'm sure everyone who hears her voice is, fuck, where did that voice come from? I'm not underselling the great songwriting that she does, but the first thing you notice is that voice. Grace is a voice that understands that drama is a contrast between light and shade, not just on a single song, but across the whole work, in this case, a Storm Queen album. In that regard, I sort of thought of the late, great Chris Wilson, uh, another musician that was so much a part of this town and who knew that the song didn't always demand that you sing loud and up front all the time. Sometimes you had to sing the song like a lullaby and pull back. This is something many singers I don't think always get. If they have the ability to sing up a storm, they often do that, but forget that there's the calm before the storm. Chris knew it, and Grace Cummings certainly knows it. She said in an interview that I read at the Beats Per Minute website that much of her material was written in the summer of 2019 before we all became ensconced with COVID and lockdowns. The main thing on Australians' minds and even other parts of the world were the devastating bushfires we were experiencing. In this country, sadly, bushfires are a part of the regular summer landscape, and this year it's been excessive flooding. But the summer of 2019-2020 was the worst in quite a while. Here in Victoria, towns were destroyed, people lost their homes in a much larger scale, and Melbourne was covered in smoke for days. I'm sure anyone listening to this from Melbourne can remember that all too well. That might have been a good time to start wearing masks, though, I don't recall seeing people actually do that. While Grace said that no songs on the album were directly about the fires, there are certainly songs on this album where she refers to our fragile landscape and nature in general in a very idyllic way. Songs like Here is the Rose or This Day in May. Eagles fly Heaven's eyes. 
I do wonder if the line in the song, Up in Flames, I just saw the daylight bring burning gum leaves with the tide, might be the one reference lyrically I could possibly see in a song that is otherwise seemingly about a relationship gone bad. I started out saying that the first thing you notice when listening to Grace is her voice. It's in the alto range, which is not something I've noticed in lots of female lead singers. Nina Simone is one obvious example, but not really so many others that I can think of off the top of my head. Please write in and tell me the millions of others that I'm forgetting. It's a large part of what draws me in, the range, the power that can assault you, the lightness of touch that can caress you, grand and theatrical. I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit pretentious here, but that's genuinely what I feel when I listen to Grace's voice. Ultimately, what kept me coming back to this album was the songcraft and the beautiful arrangements. Grace has said that the instrumentation and arrangements on this record were limited by the lockdowns that we had here in Victoria over the pandemic. There's other musicians on the album aside from Grace, but with the arrangements kept sparse, it feels less like a limitation and more like an opportunity for these songs to breathe. I haven't had the chance to see her live yet. My personal circumstances over the last couple of months meant I had to give up my ticket to an October show that she did in Mooney Ponds in the north of Melbourne. But from footage I've seen on YouTube, the live arrangements of the songs on this album are very, very different. going to say more intense but that's wrong electric is probably a better descriptor for the live band versions of these songs but that doesn't really tell you much either i'm sorry for my limited vocabulary here If the live shows are done with a rock and roll heart, the album comes more from a folk place. But of course, that might just be a lazy interpretation on my part because acoustic can still have a rock intensity and it does here, especially with her voice. But it's what I'm going to go with. Let me highlight a few favorite songs from this album. I'm going to pair... A couple of songs here for a reason I'll start off with. There's a song called Dreams and there's a song called Fly a Kite. them because they both sound to me like they would have fit in a David Lynch film. With a title like Dreams, of course I'm going to think of a David Lynch film. Uh, Lyrically, it's mostly posed as a set of questions that, unlike most songs, don't overly romanticize the idea of dreaming. It questions the value of doing so when she sings, What a Way to Waste Away. On the other hand, the album's final song, Fly a Kite, not to be confused with the Mary Poppins song, Let's Go Fly a Kite, does bring up the notion of dreaming to recall a better time in life. Take your trouble 
The idea of flying a kite is a metaphor for elevating your spirits, especially as she sings, tie your troubles to the tail. Something I think we can all identify with. Grace's vocal approach together with the slight echo on the guitar brings to my mind that this would be a great song for Roy Orbison to have sung. It has that level of quiet drama about it. The final verse she sings, I would never think to worry. I would never feel any pain. I would lie my head on my pillow and dream of flying my kite again. In the previous song I mentioned, Dreams, also an Orbison connection, I guess. Dreaming is something you fall into. In Fly Kite, dreaming is a recollection of a time when things were better. My amateurish Freudian analysis, dreams are both a place of respite and a place of avoidance. Fly Kite also adds to the eerie Lynchian feel by use of a theremin solo. We need more of them in rock music. The guitar with its use of reverb just sounds scary in the way that Elvis Presley's Sun Records recording of Tomorrow Night does. Overall, this is a great pair of songs. A lot of attention has been placed on the excellent opening song on the album, Heaven, and you've probably all heard it. Well, I know you've heard a few seconds of it at least because I played it earlier on in this segment. But in terms of drama, I think that an even greater song is the title track of the album, Storm Queen. My Most of the drama in terms of dynamic comes for the instrumental arrangement that went beyond a guitar strum from Grace. She said she knows what she wants for each song and the guy who supplies the drama on this song is a fellow called Kale Kelly. He actually put out a really brilliant album last year which I've only recently got called Classical and Cool Jazz. The album is neither, but it is wonderful. On Storm Queen, the song, he plays a moody, minimalist, upright piano, which in my opinion brings out a more frightening mood than a grand piano ever could. And he also plays an accompanying guitar part that draws no attention to itself, but its absence would detract from what's there. Saxophonist Harry Cooper plays a very scary motif between verses that feels like if this song were in a movie, it'd be the music that you hear when some psychopathic killer comes out to do his thing. I don't claim to fully understand lyrically what Grace is thinking of on this song, but I'd suggest that it's vulnerability. She sings about taking comfort from Towns Van Zandt, so she doesn't feel alone, but otherwise it's a rather somber sounding song. I take more from the mood and drama that the music builds to, as does the sound of Grace's voice. One final song I wanted to point out from this wonderful album is a song called Always New Days. Always new. And 
It's the second song on the album, coming where it does after the intense opening of Heaven. It's a beautiful contrast to let the listener breathe. It seems like a Baroque folk hybrid. The Baroque feel comes via the beautiful background harmonies of Kat Mir and the wonderful Leah Senior, who I mentioned at the start of this segment. Like the songs I mentioned earlier, there is a dreams component to this one. Like Fly a Kite, it also has Grace looking for better times ahead and trying to be optimistic. The slow melody and vocal approach on this sound fragile to my ears, making it sound like she's seen bad times before the song has been sung. Always new days, flying up ahead, I'll find you there. I hope for better times to come because they aren't here now. And once again, that's something that I think we might all be feeling a bit. Grace, tell me if I'm full of shit if you're listening to this. So many great songs on this album. Heaven, This Day in May, the very Dylan-esque Up in Flames. I'd say it's closer to Free Will and Error. All that ever there was Had an answer in sunrise I just saw the daylight bring Burning gum leaves with the tide I have been left alone Please won't you tell me how This is a record you just allow to take over you. It's not meant for passive listening. You really need to park yourself next to your stereo and play it with no distractions. It's an emotional work, as important as anything that I've heard in years. I hope to see her live soon and just know that she's going to get better and better with every album that she puts out. Okay, time for another break, and then we'll be back to talk about the final album that I have planned for this episode of Love That Album. again Lord, oh Lord I don't want anything to change To many film fans this is seen as a classic film quote Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship This one is too You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one How many times do I have to tell you No pizza for you, Joey Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. What makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films... Join us at See Here. That's S E H E A R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> okay, so before I start talking about my final pick for this show, I wanted to talk a little bit about the genre with which it's associated with and just some thoughts about it. So, the genre that my final choice is would fall under the umbrella of power pop. Now, this might come as a surprise to some of you, but people like to argue on the internet. It's crazy, but it's a revelation that I've had recently. And in particular, when you go to music-based Facebook discussion or old-style music forums... 
there's always the usual things about which band is best and God, the Beatles are boring and God, the Stones are boring and blah, blah, blah. And any manner of discussion and Bob Dylan is the king and Bob Dylan can't do jack shit. Never mind that half the world is killing the other half of the world. It seems that people have to save their vitriol for arguments about what music is better than another type of music. People just can't scroll on past and think, well, I don't like that band, but you know, let people like whoever they want to like. No, there's always going to be arguments. Not within the Love That Album Facebook group, I'm pleased to say. People are always nice and polite and respectful, regardless of whether they like someone else's pick. But One of the things that I find really, really fascinating is I've seen in a couple of forums about power pop is people argue as to whether a particular band fits under the umbrella of power pop music. To me, that's just crazy. You know, someone will say, oh, I really like such and such a band. I like such and such an album. And someone else will come along and say, well, yeah, that's not a bad record, but that's not power pop. And then someone will say, yes, well, I think it is. And then the first person, or the, and then the person who objected will say, well, that's because you're a jerk and you don't know what power pop is. Music that's often sunshiny, harmony laden, up tempo, supposed to make you smile. And people are arguing about what the definition of power pop is. Some people just have to make themselves heard, but they can't do it in a positive way. So they have to put others down. Not something I like, not something I tolerate and I just move away from. I disagree with someone on a particular music topic or any topic. I'm not going to post it. I just either keep it to myself or maybe we'll have a discussion with someone over a beer or a coffee in person because nuance and facial expression and all that sort of thing. But people just love to argue with strangers. Quite the revelation, I know. So I want to give my five-minute take on what I think power pop is, knowing that it probably requires a few hours. And this is not meant to be definitive. And please feel free to write me and tell me your thoughts and whether you disagree or say, yeah, but you forgot this. Of course, I'm going to forget it because I'm only going to talk about this for five minutes before getting to the actual album I want to praise that I heard for the first time this year. So I don't think anyone disagrees with the fact that power pop songs are often strongly melodic, guitar-based songs with heavy hooks and gorgeous vocal harmonies. Guitar solos are usually not included, but I haven't heard every power pop song on the planet. Well, actually, now that I'm saying this, I'm thinking, no, I'm wrong, because I would count Matthew Sweet as power pop, and there's definitely guitar solos in his work. So just ignore that. The songs are often edgy sounding, so gorgeous, sunshiny type of music, but with grunt, hence the power. The genre probably never took off once Marshall speaker stacks were built and guitar effects pedals became affordable. So the term power pop was supposedly developed by Pete Townsend of The Who to describe, I guess, anything that they did pre-Tommy. In my mind, that certainly fits a mold, but I'm not really sure where power pop as a name started being applied as an overall genre. It might have not been till the 90s. I mean, a lot of the bands that we sort of consider like Big Star to be 
power pop defined or certainly any of the 60s bands that we tend to think of bands who besides the obvious ones of the Beatles and the Who bands that ended up on collections like the Nuggets collection by Lenny Kay I'm not sure that the expression power pop was being applied then in fact I'm almost certain it wasn't so I'm not sure though when we did start defining songs as power pop or when bands started describing themselves in that way and writing songs to that effect uh, I don't think it was around for bands in the 80s like the Stems or Don Mariani's other project the Don Mariani 3 I don't know that power pop was a term then but I'm more than happy to be proven wrong on that I'm not really sure why any of this matters but I just sort of felt like I wanted to talk a little bit about this before actually talking about the third album I wanted to plug from this year earlier on this year I bought a book called Go All The Way. It's like a portmanteau of a bunch of individual writers talking about a particular band or a particular album or some other burning power pop related question that they might have thought of. They talk about a number of bands that they sort of describe fit under the power pop banner, bands like Cheap Trick and ELO and Big Star and the like. If you look at websites like Pop Geek Heaven, then you get to read about or listen to hundreds of other bands which don't have the big names, but people are passionate about what it is that Power Pop defines for them. Coming back to the book, the guy who curated it, or one of the two guys who curated it, is a fellow called Paul Myers. And he starts off the book with a little bit of an introduction. And the book starts with him saying this. I'm I'm quoting from the book. For me, explaining the meaning of power pop is a little like explaining what love is. You know it when you feel it, but damn if it's not different for everyone who experiences it. So coming back to what I was speaking before about those forums or Facebook power pop sites where people are arguing, saying, "Uh, that's not power pop. The Guardians, the Gatekeepers... Paul Myers has made a pretty good definition saying, well, it's personal. You listen to it and you know what power pop is for you. I still struggle with gatekeepers of any type. I mean, okay, if someone's going to come along and define some thrash metal band or a Herbie Hancock album as being power pop, you know that they're obviously taking the piss. But in general, I think power pop, like any other genre, is a broad church. And I think it doesn't serve it well when people try to narrowly define what it is or what it isn't. Unlike some people, I do support the idea of music categorization to a point. I don't cope with hundreds of subdivisions, but people saying, I don't believe in jazz, I believe in music, is bullshit to me. We all categorize, so we have a rough idea as to what we're going to be listening to. And that's fine. After tuning into tons of power pop from the big obvious 60s and 70s names or the big guys from the 90s like Matthew Sweet and Fountain of Wayne, both who we've discussed on this show pretty much in the early days, bands like Plimsolls and and The Shoes and The Records... I've realized that power pop, as I mentioned a moment ago, is a broad church. When I hear the expression power pop, my intuition is focused on the 1965 to 66 era of jangly guitar pop with harmonies 
while that style that comes to be defined later on as power pop is being developed. Modern bands that attempt that style are doing a deliberate retro homage to a sound that they love. And that's not a problem. I think some people have an issue with that. But there's also a lot of stuff out there from some of these lesser known bands on Pop Geek Heaven's site and, you know, other places. You know, the Not Lame label was a big one for Power Pop, for the promotion of Power Pop. There's bands on there which don't necessarily have that jangly birds-like guitar sound, not the Roger McGuinn sound or that... 6566 rubber soul revolver era of power pop the touchstones and even you know some of the bands that we consider nowadays as cornerstones of power pop like big star doesn't sound like 6566 beatles era it progressed or it changed and like any other style did and there's no crime with that i don't know i'm just carrying on here just because i've read a bunch of these things online and Just people's immature attitudes just piss me off. Just define what you want, like what you want, and let's move on. Even other bands from the late 70s, some people define as power pop, and I'm fine with that. You know, The Cars and Blondie and, you know, some of those so-called new wave bands of the late 70s. They're very poppy, but they don't sound like the birds. Why am I talking about all this? I should probably just get into talking about the album that I want to focus on. So earlier on this year, uh, Scott Thurling, who's the head honcho at Pop Boomerang Records and co-head of Sound As Ever, the Facebook group, general media mogul, he posted that he had tracked down the classic debut album from The Toms. I'd never heard of them before. I was intrigued enough by his description to give it a listen on YouTube or maybe it was Bandcamp, I don't recall. I was absolutely blown away by this. So a little bit of history here. The Toms started out as a side project of an audio engineer called Tommy Marolda. And along with recruiting other musicians over the years, the Toms is still going today. But that debut album is Tommy playing everything. He released an album this year with a full band called Stereo, and they're still recording a new one as I speak uh, that's going to be due for release sometime in 2023. The amazing thing, though, is that the debut album and much of what followed was all Tommy playing everything in his home recording studio in New Jersey. Now, that's no big deal here in 2022 because lots of people record stuff in their home studios and some of them even in New Jersey, I'm assured. But I don't imagine that that was as common in 1979. But he is following in a fine tradition when you think of albums like Something Anything by Todd Rundgren, which we've talked about on the show, Anything by the great Emmett Rhodes, who we've also discussed on this show, McCartney and McCartney 2 by Paul McCartney. Uh, What else? Oh, yeah, the fully formed demos put out by Pete Townsend on the Scoop albums. They're all demos, but they all sound fully formed, and those uh, Scoop albums are really something to behold. All these albums by the one musician playing everything. Years later, Dave Grohl ran with that method for his Foo Fighters debut. And even though... It's not Stevie Wonder only, but if you look at those early 70s albums, those great albums, he's playing most of the instruments, if not all of them. I mean, he couldn't play horns, but he played probably just about everything else. 
So Tommy Marolda is certainly following in a fine tradition of all-round musicians, songwriters, people who just knew what they wanted to do and, and just did it by themselves. The story goes was that Tommy was supposed to have, on a particular week in 1979, members of Earth, Wind & Fire and the Smithereens, not together, record in his studio, but they bailied out. That's a little Earth, Wind & Fire joke, folks. <laughs> I don't recall if I read that Tommy either wrote 40 songs in that week or he recorded 40 songs that he'd previously written in that time. Either way, I think we can all agree that he made very productive use of that time that would otherwise just be utilised by watching the TV or something. But uh, creative people don't just sit back and watch the TV. They write songs and they record songs or they write a book or... All sorts of wonderful creative things. And that's what Tommy did. So either he wrote or recorded 40 songs, which is just an amazing feat, especially when you consider that he was playing all the instruments himself. So 40 songs, and he picked the best 12 that made it to this debut self-titled album. A bunch more have been released on the digital download reissue, which you can get at Bandcamp, and even more were released on an album called The 1979 Sessions. So with all that in mind, what can I tell you about the original album, the original 12 songs? What drew me in and why is this album highly regarded amongst those who know of its existence? Now, this might get me in trouble, but I was having a conversation with a friend saying that I thought that within what we label now as Americana, there is too much about slavish adherence to the genre. Often, a lot of it seems to be about the sound and the style, and there are artists who seem to forget about songwriting excellence. Now, I acknowledge that this is purely subjective, but I believe it, and so did my unnamed friend. I'm not naming him, even though he's possibly listening to this and he knows who he is. I think the same can be said for some power pop, but pick your genre. It's probably true across the musical board. There's just some stuff that I've heard that I felt was guilty of this. Tommy Marolda is obviously in love with the sound of the classic power pop era, that 60s jangle, if we're going to define it like that. And I read an interview where he said that he embraces power pop as a label. And not every musician who we can label as power pop or jangle pop or whatever you want to call it does embrace that label. However, this album is crammed full of great songs. Once again, the Toms by the Toms. These songs would work equally well if they were being played with one guy behind a piano or an acoustic guitar in a completely different style. These songs are fantastic on their own. They sound all the greater, I think, because they're played in this jangle style, but they'd work in any other genre. And I don't necessarily know that everything else that I've heard or a lot of stuff that I've heard in the power pop mold would necessarily work in any other style. Once again, slavishness to the style and not necessarily always to the songwriting substance. If you disagree with me, write and tell me politely, but no name calling. The songs on this album are memorable and catchy as all get out. He's not merely trying to sound like artists who he admires, and he quite obviously loves the Beatles and Todd Rundgren and Emmett Rhodes, but once again, he's writing great songs first, then arranging the songs to work in a style that he loves. One thing that Tommy obviously understood well was the importance of the statement of intent, as I call it, also known as side one 
track one song that you hear at the start of an album you can probably name tons of them uh, my big one is get the knack by the knack opening song let me out that's a statement of intent and on this album it's a song called let's be friends again One song to demonstrate to someone what power pop is, if you weren't going to go down the obvious 60s contenders route, then this song would be a fantastic option. Three minutes of high energy, major key melody with a guitar riff and a vocal riff. The lines that Tommy sings in the verses could easily be a guitar motif, but cleverly, he's singing them rather than playing them. If Todd Rundgren wasn't cursing that he didn't write this song, he bloody well should have been. It's a perfect piece of happiness. I'm sorry, I apologize in a way for playing a game of spot the influence here, but You Must Have Crossed My Mind, which is the second song in the album, sounds like like Tommy was digging into those great albums of Emmett Rhodes, who I mentioned before. And the next song on the album, It's Needless, are glorious slices of pop that are wistful. And It's Needless has a touch of the melancholy that really put me in mind of that first Emmett Rhodes LP. Neither have the same energy of the first cut on the album. But Light and Shade over again is what keeps a record like this so interesting. Yet these songs sound very much like they belong together. While power pop is more generally listened to for its melodic hooks than lyricism, by 1979, great crafters of song still wanted to write about love from a joyful or a heartbroken angle or wistful angle as has forever been the domain of popular song. But Tommy just writes about it cleverly and honestly. There's one song on the album called Better Than Anyone Else. It's a beautiful take on the missed opportunity song. You see someone, they see you, but something as random as another person interrupting a conversation has you withdrawing, never to regain that chance. Not a profound topic for a song, but it's something many of us experience, and it's handled here without being corny, and the chorus is hooky as these songs are supposed to be. The other song I want to mention from this album is the closing cut on the album. It's called The Bear. smoke 
And it may be the one song that lyrically doesn't go along with themes of love. It's a two-minute acoustic rock song about working on a cattle farm and being isolated. Yep, that's real typical power pop fodder, isn't it? But who cares? It's just really, really catchy. I'm hoping that this has been covered by a bluegrass act out there. Please, if you know of that, send me an email or post in the Facebook group. I'd love to hear that rendition. Musically, once again, it's just another great slice of major key pop and it makes me smile. Oh, have I mentioned Tommy's excellence as a musician? There's nothing on this album that's flashy, and that's not what this music is about. It's about confidence and energy and commitment. These songs don't sound like the work of one man overlaying himself. It all sounds like a band, which I guess is great testament to Tommy's skills as an engineer as well. I can't nominate a song that illustrates that best, and that's sort of the point. If there was a great bass solo or guitar solo or fancy drum work, it would take away from the cohesiveness of what a great pop record like this is supposed to be. So ultimately, the purpose behind this record is to make you smile. It might have well been influenced by what's come before, but it's not a pastiche or trying to evoke nostalgia. It's just a record that Tommy Marolda recorded in a style that made him happy through songcraft. Style without substance is nostalgia. Style with substance is joyful art. And that's exactly what Tommy Marolda has gone and done here. You can get hold of a digital copy of the album through his Bandcamp website, and you can check out any of the other albums that he's gone and recorded. I believe that sometime in 2023, the album is getting released as a double record with a whole bunch of the other 1979 Sessions songs. I'd love it if it were on CD, but having a download is not enough for me. I think I'll probably end up ordering the record. A little indulgent, but what the hell? This is so good. That's how good. I'm prepared to double dip. my selections of albums that I heard for the first time this year just to give you a bit of an insight into my stupid mind I don't know if you're looking online you'll probably see tons of people coming up with their lists of 20 30 40 albums that they enjoyed that came out this year and here I am coming up with this just this little list of three Um, Look, I'll add another few here just that I'll talk about for a minute or two each just to give you some idea of what else I've been listening to. But like everyone else, I've been listening to quite a fair bit of stuff, but I just wanted to keep this brief. First, I want to give a shout out to Wally Meany slash Wally Kempton, the bass player for the Meanies and for Even. Even released a really great album, late 2021, early 2022, their first double album. And that's certainly worth your while. But I want to give Wally more of a shout out for the fact that he's running a really great record label slash CD label called Cheer Squad. They do a mixture of new stuff and re-releasing old stuff that hasn't been around for years. And one of the albums that came out on the label this year was from a local act. The name of the album is called A Printout of the Sun. It's the debut album for LA Move.
well, like we were discussing before about one man bands, is a guy called Dave Moody. M-U-D-I-E. He's the drummer for Courtney Barnett, but he plays everything on this album. When he tours, he does have a live band, and the music is sort of a mixture of power pop and psych, so you know that that's something that's going to appeal to me. Yeah, really, really good album, and you can get that from Bandcamp. A great album from uh, LA Mood. I look forward to being able to see them at some stage live. I know that the band was doing a gig in Melbourne, I think at the Merry Creek Tavern, Mick Thomas's venue i think well, maybe just in the last week or two but um, gigs have been a little bit tough of lately anyway la moods album a print out of the sun is one that rocked my boat this year the second thing i want to talk about just for a minute is something of a novelty any reggae fans out there will be all too familiar with the trojan record label and in the 90s or the early 2000s maybe both they released a bunch of anthologies these three cd box sets that would specialize in something so there'd be a scar box set There'd be a Lover's Rock box set. There'd be Reggae for Kids. There was even a Beatles covers box set. So the one, of course, that I had to buy was the Trojan X-rated box set. Found that on the internet. Able to buy myself a copy of that. And you have songs on there like Wrecker Buddy, Don't Touch Me Tomato, How Your Panty Get Wet, and a bunch of other titles which I don't really think I want to mention. Far less subtle than those gems. And let me slide in Girl Lie down And open your legs Girl Open up And let me push it in Now I am inside So this box set It's more of a curio than anything else But the music is genuinely good Just with lyrics that were probably Not meant for radio airplay But were probably played loud at certain parties so uh, that's the trojan x rated box set that's what that's called you can probably find that on a streaming site if you look or maybe you can buy that through ebay or discogs probably long out of print uh the third one is another 2022 album actually both my final titles here that i want to talk about in brief are 2022 albums one of them is from la love it he released an album after i can't remember how many years but a long time since he recorded an, an album and this one was called 12th of june It's not necessarily the greatest album he's ever recorded, but after however many years of not releasing something, it is definitely wonderful to hear him back with his band doing the mix of jazz and country that La Love It does. And of course, the man who wrote a song like Penguins Are So Sensitive to My Needs would write a song called Pants Is Overrated. Yeah, a great album overall, one that you should uh, follow up with. Final album I want to give a shout out to is from a trio called Pacey, King and Dolly. The name of the album is called Better Together. And just like the wheels keep on turning I begin to see my destiny today And if I have regrets
you're a long-time listener to Love That Album, then Shane Pacey will be no stranger to you. And hopefully, even if you've not listened to this show before, Shane Pacey should be no stranger to you. He fronts a band that's been around for years and years and years in Sydney called the Bondi Cigars, a great sort of funk blues band. And Shane is their guitar player, songwriter, and incredible singing voice as well. Uh, Sally King... Uh, is a beloved Sydney blues singer. I, not being a Sydney resident, had not heard her before, but she's absolutely fantastic on this album. And Clayton Dolly, who's a uh, session keyboard player. He's played Hammond organ and other keys for Jimmy Barnes and Mahalia Barnes and Rene Geyer and any other manner of very famous, very well-known Australian musicians and singers over the years. So the three of them, along with the rhythm section, have put together something of a supergroup album, I guess. Once again, the name of the album is called Better Together. It's a great album of originals and a soul and funk vein. Thus far, they've only been playing around Sydney. So if you live out that way, go see them live. You really need to. The album will be available, I think, from Bandcamp. That's how I got mine. Okay, so short and sweet... That's uh, episode 161 of Love That Album Done and Dusted. I want to say a huge thank you to anyone who's reached out to me over the last few months to find out if I was all right. I truly appreciate people's good hearts and kind thoughts, but that's the Love That Album community. You're all wonderful. The next episode, 162, is supposed to be about the album White City by Pete Townsend with my good friend Charlie Mahoney of the Stinking Paws podcast. Now, that might be out in February. I might take off January as well. So extend this hiatus just for a little bit more. We'll see how we go. But please don't unsubscribe from the podcast. We are coming back on a regular basis. And the same goes for the See Here podcast. For some inexplicable reason, you're missing my thoughts or the thoughts of any of the other wonderful people who I speak with. Go back through the archive and please give See Here, S-W-H-E-A-R, podcast a go. Also part of the Pantheon Network. If you need some more music discussion podcasts to fill in your ear holes, then please select anything that's going on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Some mighty fine shows on there, and I've made some great friends with some of the other hosts and presenters of some of those absolutely fantastic shows. All right, with that, I will uh, bid you all a fond farewell. Happy Hanukkah, happy Christmas, happy Festivus, happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate, if you celebrate. Just look after yourselves, look after your loved ones, listen to plenty of music, watch some great films, read some terrific books. I'll speak to you all in I'm late.